Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore our relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 3, The Green Path, with Mark Williams. In this episode, we speak with Mark Williams, who is a ethnobotanist and plant educator, about ethnobotany, plants, rainbow gatherings, and the legacy of Frank Cook. You can find Mark Williams at www.botanyeveryday.com, at plantsandhealers.org, and he's on the board of the United Plant Savers. We had a little glitches in the uh, sound quality, but this is one of our first episodes, and we hope you'll forgive us. It's a wonderful episode anyway, and I really hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Mark Williams, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. So we are really excited today to have Mark Williams. He's an ethnobotanist, a lifelong student of plants and fungi and humans and he's a traveler and a teacher and we're really looking forward to exploring um, some of his background and wild foods and his travels and botany today so thank you again mark for for being with us yeah my pleasure thank you mark <laughs> so i first met you at rainbow <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and uh, leading a, a wild plant walk and uh my mind was blown about about how much you knew about plants. You know, you, you like I, I, I remember you probably had like uh, printed out sheets of like every single species in uh, in the Vermont mountains. <laughs> hmm So that's 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 really cool. And that's my first memory of you. Yeah. So, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe who you are and what you are currently doing, what projects you have that are present for you, um, just to give our listeners a little idea from your own words of, of who you are. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I would say that I am primarily an educator about the natural world and starting with a real deep study of the plants and then more recent times expanding out to fungi and microbes and kind of my most recent newest interest is the butterflies and the birds and so well <laughs> i teach a lot of classes um both in person and virtually about those different subjects and um, i work with a lot of different organizations in that regard and I also help direct the nonprofit Plants and Healers International, which is a continuation of the work of Frank Cook, who is one of my great teachers and mentors, and unfortunately transitioned from this plane uh, August 19, 2009. Mm-hmm. So this nonprofit was started to continue Frank's work, and uh, he basically traveled all over the world studying with various different people from indigenous healers to academics about the plant traditions around the world and wrote a bunch of publications about that and also led trips in particular to Peru and Costa Rica and India and South Africa where he would take groups of folks to meet some of the people that he had met. And so we have continued that through the nonprofit Although it feels like we're transitioning from the trip leading part and more focusing towards doing new publications in regards to the plant traditions, in particular of Central South America and the Caribbean currently. And I live uh, outside of Asheville, North Carolina in Weaverville near the Blue Ridge Parkway that people might be familiar with and uh, spend most of my time here in Asheville from, say, March until November each year, and then tend to spend the winter at a minimum down south in Florida, where I mostly grew up, and uh, 
at times, especially over the last five years, doing traveling to some of those regions that I was just describing. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I can obviously maybe kind of go on and on, but uh, it's, for, I guess, a little bit just about my education. Uh, yeah, tell us about, yeah, your, your schooling. Yeah, so my path has been both, I would say, kind of like standard and very unconventional mm -hmm. and very meandering because uh, I basically started college with a four-year scholarship to be an officer in the military. I come from a military family, fourth generation, I'm the third generation within that. And um, yeah, it wasn't until after my freshman year of college that I really got this sense of basically what I would say is my calling in life around learning about nature and teaching people. So uh, shortly after that, I started kind of reorienting and uh, did a lot of that in Gainesville, Florida in the mid to late 90s. And uh, that's actually where I first found out about the Rainbow Gathering, went to my first regional Rainbow Gathering in 1995 in Ocala which led to my first national in 97 in Oregon. And I guess we get more into what rainbow is for people that aren't familiar. Yeah, yeah tell us like what um, rainbow is. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a whole thing unto itself, right? right? I actually wrote a term paper for one of my English classes back when I was still in community college. But um, after that, I moved to this area where I live now, Asheville, and uh, received a bachelor's degree in environmental studies with a minor in business and um, had my own food business, did uh, like catering and fruit farmer's markets. We had a restaurant, food at festivals, all that sort of stuff. But uh, that didn't work out for various reasons and started doing landscaping after that and then moved on to uh, go to graduate school in Boone, which is a couple hours north of Asheville to study sustainable development and in particular spent thousands of hours studying the plants of Appalachia mm -hmm. and how we can interact with them in a sustainable manner. And when I graduated from there, I pretty much launched into what I do now, which is teaching a lot in this region of Appalachia and at different points in time across the country and in other countries. I'm, I'm curious, Mark, what was that shift that you said in, in college um, where it, that brought you to the plant path? What, what was it specifically, anything that happened or that, like, what, what was the calling that you speak of, like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was an incremental process. Um, and I would say a lot of it was just about the community that I met in Gainesville, Florida, at the University of Florida, in particular, the Plaza of the Americas, mm -hmm. uh, is this kind of community space in the middle of campus that lots of people meet up at. And so I kind of fell in with this crew. And I would say initially it was about um, actually diet. And I became vegetarian shortly after that in um, the late 90s. And then from that, that kind of led me into this explore, exploration around what is a good diet. And um, I, I guess short of the long of it is I did a 10-day silent meditation retreat in May of 98 through um, the style of Vipassana, which happens all over the world. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that retreat, I got this insight that I needed to understand where the food that I was cooking came from. And uh, the place where I worked, a little cafe in Gainesville, was doing the farm-to-table thing before that was so popular. So I started working at the farm that supplied the table. And in the process of working at that farm, a lady named Laura started showing me some of the plants that were growing on the farm that we weren't intentionally cultivating, but could be used as um, potential medicinals or wild edibles. And that really just flipped this switch for me because um, I had, even since being young, had this interest kind of in, um, I guess, science fiction, um, for lack of a better word, uh, like Tolkien and, um, you know, Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons, stuff like that. And I always was interested in the elves and the nature spirits. And so when this lady Laura started showing me these things, it kind of was like, whoa, you mean people do this for real? It's not just like make-believe? And 
that just launched me into going to the library, which I always loved and found out about permaculture and, you know, more about wild edibles. And then it kind of just steadily built from there. And I would say definitely fairly early on too, a, a mutual inspiration we have is Seven Song. And um, plant walks and otherwise kind of just furthered that. And Frank Cook is also a student of Seven Song as well from the 90s. So uh, it seems like uh, eating was one of your primary, you know, uh, entries into plants, which I think is true for a lot of people. Um, But do you have like a particular memory of like a particular experience with the plant that really opened the door further? Um, Hmm. Well, I mean, I've always loved to cook since I was very young, but more like kind of conventional, you know, Betty Crocker, Southern living type cooking. And it was really working at this place, uh, this cafe in Gainesville that did stuff from scratch. And um, yeah, I mean, that's where I kind of got into this idea around fermentation and um and vegan eating and you know so but still like stuff that you kind of get from the grocery store I, I can remember one of the plants that I learned at this farm that supplied the cafe Phoenix Rising Farm north of Gainesville was plantain and plantain is uh, I think a gateway plant for a lot of people uh, it can be a field first aid thing to help with the bee sting and at the same time it could also be added to your salad or your pesto Mm-hmm. So I'd say that would be kind of, you know, along with the dandelion and the chickweed and, and some of those right. other things, some of the earlier ones. The first ones that you see, yeah, the ones that you see growing in the garden beds at farms and fields and common to lawns, yeah. So Exactly. Uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite wild foods then? What are your favorite plants to cook? And, uh, yeah, uh, well, that's always tough, right? Because it's like, um, there's just so many of them once you open your eyes to see. I'm, I'm familiar with hundreds of wild edibles alone, let alone cultivated ones. But um, yeah, there's, I kind of break them into categories, you know, the greens, like I was just talking about with the dandelions and the chickweed and the plantain, things like lamb's quarters and the pigweeds and the amaranthus genus and um, a lot of the things that are from the mustard family, the mm-hmm. things co- collectively called creasy greens. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the fruits, right? So like Juneberry would probably be, oh or gosh. I guess up there maybe I'll call it a uh, shadbush or serviceberry or maybe called Juneberry too. It's a plant with a lot of names, but it's um, ripe around my birthday. And so I often we'll make like, cake or ice cream or something from it and um or brew it into wine (laughs) and um so that would probably be one of the favorite wild fruits although certainly some others and then of course you have the root crops like burdock and um yellow dock and but once again i would say the overarching thing that connects all of those are the plants that are very commonly available and um have a large array of potential applications. Yeah. yeah. So, what are your, some of your favorite applications? You talked about uh, fermentation before. Mm-hmm. I know you, you've done uh, some classes with Sandor cats. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How 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 do you ferment? What, what's what do you do with that? Yeah. So, uh, Sandor, thanks for bringing him in because he's mm-hmm. definitely kind of the dean of fermentation for our country and. Mm-hmm. Certainly, along with Frank, one of my earliest influences, and um, I would say one of the big ones that's a real standard that I do throughout the year is making different kinds of sauerkraut or types of kimchi. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, also lots of pestos. Frank taught me to think of pesto more as a genre than an exact recipe. So basically, any kind of edible greens and any kind of oil and any kind of nutter seed and cheese or no cheese and so make a lot of pesto, make a lot of sauerkraut. Um, tea is probably the easiest thing though, right? Just go out, grab some plants, put them in hot water. Oh, sure, yeah. Let them steep. Um, and certainly brewing. I definitely have brewed 
hundreds of gallons of uh, wine at this point and um, moving more recently towards non-alcoholic types of beverages uh, too, like kind of reclaiming some of these old-timey beverages based on vinegar, like shrubs and switchels and um, oxamels. And so that's kind of a growing leading edge. Yeah, we just made made a uh, oxymel with a sea berry. And it was nice. very good. I think uh, mm-hmm. Ben Falk put a video of that up. But that's one of my favorite things now. Nice, <laughs> yeah. Real high in vitamin C and lycopene, too, that one. Yeah. yeah. I guess you could do that with autumn olive, too. Yep. Yeah, they're related. Same yeah. family. And that's one of the big things that I try to get out there to the world that I inherited from Frank is looking at plants and their family relations because they're much fewer families like on the order of hundreds versus species of plants on the order of hundreds of thousands and oftentimes just by knowing what family something's in then you can know whether it's edible medicinal poisonous um, you know some other applications for supporting other organisms like birds bees and butterflies and um, whether it might be invasive that's actually Big subject I'm going to be working on in the next couple few days, and I've worked on for uh, yeah, the invasive plants and basically how to flip the script on them, and instead of looking at them as a problem, look at them as a resource. And the autumn olive that you mentioned is a classic example that way because it's very, very, very nutritious, and um, yeah, yeah, it's a hard needle to thread with that though and kind of controversial that could probably be a full on topic. Yeah, and I think about kudzu when I think about your area and invasives. Do you yeah. use that for food or medicine? I do somewhat. Kudzu uh, tends to be a little bit more involved and I don't really exactly know why. I haven't felt a little bit more called to it. I mean, for one thing, it's not super common where we're at, but I have a friend, Zev Friedman, who's super into kudzu, and he does uh, this thing called kudzu camp. And um, folks will spend a whole weekend doing all these different things with kudzu because the root, you can obtain a starch, which is actually also medicinal, and uh, the flowers, you can make a jelly and... um, could potentially uh, prepare the leaves as well. And um, yeah, so especially the starch, I think I probably have more experience with. For one of those kudzu camps, I did all the food. And so we tried to incorporate kudzu as much as possible. I think that's a classic plant though that gets mischaracterized as far as how big an issue it is relative to maybe some other plants and also relative to the fact that every single part of it is useful and there's yeah. Yeah. books written about all of those different uses and applications not just for food but also for fiber and forage and livestock and yeah various other things yeah uh, up here there's a lot of japanese knotweed which is probably one of the most aggressive plants that i know but yeah. it still is super useful uh, yeah, for, I mean Lyme disease, and you can eat it. There's so many things. Yeah, yeah, I use a good bit of that, especially in the spring, instead of rhubarb, which for whatever reason seems kind of hard to grow here. But the Japanese knotweed is pretty closely related to rhubarb and tastes very similar. So that kind of classic strawberry rhubarb combo of the spring, I often do instead Japanese knotweed rhubarb combo. But yeah, it's very high in resveratrol, which is getting a lot of press. Um, more so for grapes, but it's got more than them. Um, like you said, especially Stephen Buhner has talked about Japanese knotweed in relation to uh, Lyme disease protocol. And um, yeah, it's good for pollinators, it's a natural dye plant. I mean, I guess I would be clear to say I would never plant anything like Japanese <laughs> knotweed myself, yeah. personally. I actually spent a whole year of my life trying to rid it from the garden. Right. At Warren Wilson College, where I got my undergrad, and I managed uh, 15 years ago. Suffice mm-hmm. it to say, it's still laughing at me to this day. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would never plant that for sure. <laughs> but yeah, have a lot of uses. Right. So, what I, what I one of the things that I find interesting about you is that, that you have a lot, so much uh, botanical knowledge and like book knowledge, but also a lot of hands-on 
uh, experience and skill. Um, but so you were talking earlier about how about learning plants from the families, right? And yeah. I know the classic book for that is uh, Botany in a Day, and yeah. your website is Botany Every Day. So mm -hmm. would would you tell us a little bit about uh, the book, your website, and like what the importance of botany is? Sure. Yeah. So. Botany in the Day is a book written by Thomas Alpel, who lives in Montana, and um, we're currently in the sixth edition of that, which I helped to revise the most recent edition. Cool. And Frank Cook, uh, it's over 20 years ago now, was very inspired by that book and how it kind of simplified his process of learning botany, which is often thought to be pretty technical and something that you kind of need to study and, you know, get a degree in or something, or at least go to some, you know, kind of formalized course of study, like Seven Songs School or something. And um, Botany in a Day, I feel like, really makes it accessible to everybody. It's this amazing bridge between kind of the lay public and academia, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And um, when... Frank was still around and we would kind of joke instead of botany in a day, it should be botany every day, you know, it was kind of like a running joke. And so when he passed, I kind of just naturally felt called to continue the work of this online botany class that he had been teaching by donation for nine years over email. And of course, at that point, uh, about 10 years, 11 years ago now that, um, you know, things were much more moving towards websites and weren't quite on the, at least I wasn't quite to the social media level yet, but it seemed clear to like instead do it by email to do it by a website. And so that name, Botany Every Day, kind of came to mind as uh, the name that would be good for the website. So that's where people can go, botanyeveryday.com, to check out that online class that still happens by donation. And uh, basically the class... When Frank did it, I think it was more like June to November, but I uh, have been steadily pushing it back earlier. So I started around the spring equinox and go till the end of the year. And it is mostly a text-based and photo album-based course. It's totally um, pretty much self-guided. So you can jump in at any point in time, even though it starts in March and goes till December. It starts very slow for one thing. Um, but you can jump in at any point. And sometimes if people are really busy during the growing season, I recommend maybe diving into it in the winter, you know, just uh, when there's maybe more downtime. And there's a bunch of reading. There's um, a bunch of suggested activities with each class. And the first few classes focus really on the kind of terminology of botany and how plants are put into these families that we were talking about and classified. In that way and then it turns towards categories of plant usage after that so wild edible plants cultivated edible plants medicinal plants poisonous plants woody plants um, plants that clean up the environment which is a science called phytoremediation uh, plants that help support biodiversity and as i alluded to earlier i do a class on invasives um, but also arctic plants is one of the newest ones i spent long time like arctic polar um northern latitude like all the real cold place plants and, wow. uh, yeah i've never i know nothing about that that's so interesting it's super fascinating it was mad humbling i spent yeah. about a month of my life on it last year um, cool. but uh yeah then i really want to um kind of cutting edge with that is more wetland plants and, and desert plants mm. and the new ones i'm going to bring online this year and then a little bit about tropical plants as well. It's mostly written from the perspective of places that get cold and frost and freeze, which of course is much easier, botanically speaking. Yeah, so what's, what's the importance of botany and, and why do folks want to learn about botany in general? Right, thank you for kind of circling back around to that because um, of course this is really important in the motivating factors for folks to learn is like, well, why does it matter? What, what is it that makes it important? And uh, I would distill it down. Another person recently 
who does a similar thing that y'all are doing was like asking me this question too. And basically plants are essential for our survival. And beyond that, which can seem to me like enough in and of itself, but maybe it feels like a little hyperbolic or a little too dire. The idea of connecting with plants and the science of botany can also be a lot of fun. And for me, I find, especially in my travels, that there's just a whole nother quality to traveling when everywhere you go, you're surrounded by friends. Oh yeah, so beautiful. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about traveling is going all to all the different ecosystems and, and meeting new friends. So you've you've traveled quite a bit, right? You said uh, every state in the union and also thirty countries. Yeah. So why do you travel and what is your favorite botanical garden? Oh, hmm. Well, um, yeah, I, I think in some ways it's in my blood on my dad's side. He is in the military and traveled all over the world that way. On my mom's side, she's Dutch and thinking it's been actually to over a hundred countries. So um, I've just kind of grown up with stories of other places and um, always just been fascinated by different cultures and then kind of becoming you know, understudy or I'm not exactly sure how I'd characterize in some ways my connection to Frank. Uh, but, you know, he had traveled all over the world. And so that kind of inspired me to potentially follow in his footsteps. But um, I would say that um, that's really changing for me for so many reasons. I mean, especially for somebody with two degrees in sustainability, there's no getting around the elephant in the room of how much carbon it takes yeah. to travel and how there's some intergenerational, um, I don't even know exactly what to say, but um, just thinking about future folks, um, I, I really, even for the last 10 years, I've traveled a lot of uh, those different countries in particular, I've always felt this um, responsibility and um, big drive to, do that in a way where I was learning and I was not just taking, but I was giving back to the communities that I visited. And I feel like um, even as I curtail my traveling moving forward, I think I've kind of already, you know, gotten over the peak of, of my travels at this point that I could spend the rest of my life just trying to give back to the amazing places that I've been and as far as botanical gardens that I've been to, I've been to over 200. So once again, it's hard to pick a favorite, but okay. <laughs> gardens in London is probably the best botanical gardens in the world. And if I had to yeah. pick a favorite, that would probably be it. If I were to think more domestically, I would say maybe um, New York Botanical Gardens in the Bronx or um, the Missouri Botanical Gardens in St. Louis or uh, Berkeley Botanical Gardens in California. For the Southeast, maybe, uh, it'd probably be a lot harder for the Southeast. There's also Fairchild, I guess, in Miami, as far as a tropical place goes. Isaac and I had a really nice day at the San Francisco Botanical Gardens on a traveling adventure. In the Golden Gate Park? Yeah, yeah. and that's another super amazing one. I might give Berkeley a little bit the edge, but that one is certainly very inspiring as well. Yeah, that was really fun. We saw like a miniature redwood tree. That... Wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, maybe it was just a small one. There, there are a lot of interesting plants. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. So, so it seems like Frank Cook has been a very big influence on you. So uh, some of our listeners may know who he is, but probably there are a lot that don't. Um, would you care to talk about him as a as a person as a teacher and what his legacy is yeah sure uh, i think first and foremost i would direct people to the website plantsandhealers.org because there we have archived all sorts of everything from youtube videos to essays he wrote and some of the books and um poetry and recipes and all these things but frank definitely is this force of nature 
that continues to live on, not just in me, but through a lot of other people he inspired around the world to this day. And he grew up in a military family, like I did. So we kind of bonded in that regard. And um, kind of had an awakening similar to me, but earlier, because he was, um, I guess, a little bit over a decade older than me. And um, yeah, just kind of oriented towards the natural world in the late 80s. And as I said earlier, traveled all over then in the pursuit of knowledge of plants in particular, but also the cultural uses and applications of the plants. He had a goal to meet every single family of plant and as many genera as possible. And there's over 400 families wow. uh, in the world. And um, yeah, I mean, as much as I can give facts and figures and this, that, and the other thing, and you know, he went to Duke and then he got his master's degree in England at Schumacher and all these things, I would just really direct people to maybe watch a few videos because it's hard to put into my own words the charisma of Frank and his way of being that, as I said, so many people have found inspirational through the years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, somebody who's not, who had never met him, he seems. It seems like the from watching videos, his his personal charisma was was very powerful. Yes, for sure, and I think his ability to really also personalize what he had to share to the particular group that he was in, and really just kind of meet people where they were at, and really charge them with this personal responsibility to be their best selves. Absolutely. And so did you meet him at, at Rainbow or somewhere somewhere else? Yeah, it's an interesting question because as I mentioned earlier, um, I guess we'll have to get into this quote unquote Rainbow at some point. Yeah. Maybe I'll just do that yeah. by saying, um, although Rainbow, God, I mean, how to really distill it down and maybe I could pitch in, but um, it's this gathering of people that's been happening since the 70s, and there's a bunch of different forms from the regional to the international, and um, the different ones happen at different points in time. So the first one I went to in 95 in Ocala, Florida, is one that happens around Valentine's Day, and the first one that I went to was a very small gathering, I mean, a few hundred people, and I know that Frank was there, so there's no doubt that I interacted with him then, as well as a lot of other people that have uh, become really dear friends to this day. But um, I was very early on my journey. That was like kind of right after I'd left my military training kind of thing. And um, so I, I wasn't quite there. Um, I think even maybe Seven Song might have been there too. But uh, it was really more like around 2000, 2001 that I really fell in strongly with Frank and I would say a real kind of like where I'd say I just straight fell in love with him in a way, not romantically, but kind of as a brother and mentor and a friend uh, was at this permaculture gathering that happens around Asheville about an hour north uh, at the first weekend of every August. And Frank had this way of like, he would always go to these rainbow gatherings where all these people meet and um, at the national level, it's all about a prayer for peace, and it happens around July 4th, a couple of weeks before, and maybe a week or so after. And um, yeah, I would say it probably wasn't until around the 2004 California National Gathering in the Modoc National Forest that I kind of got into this idea that you were referring to earlier about having, trying to make an inventory of all the plants where we were gathering. And rainbow is such a wide spectrum thing. If you think of a rainbow, it's every color, right? And um, so I'm leaving out a lot of other aspects that other people might find important to rainbow. But for me, it's especially through Frank been about trying to educate the public about plants. Hmm. Yeah. So is that why you why you personally continue to go to the Rainbow Gatherings mostly? Well, yeah, I mean, that's also in flux for me, um, kind of tied to what we were talking about with travel before. 
I mean, initially I did have, I'm a big collector of lots of things. And uh, one of them was to go to every state. And Rainbow is in a different state every year in some national forest. And so from, I guess about like 2003 in Utah till about 2009, or I guess it was 2008 in Wyoming, like that was a big goal was like, well, I'm gonna go to Rainbow, but I'm gonna drive there. I'm gonna go to every single botanical gardens I can along the way and um, meet up with different friends and stuff too. And uh, Frank was still around then and he often, it, somebody who would lead these walks with Seven Song, our mutual teacher. And then when Frank passed in 2009, I kind of, maybe by default, if something else sort of took on that role. And uh, yeah, I felt very strong about it and, and went to a lot of um, the gatherings and the fears after that. But now I'm more like in this way that I don't think I can go to a Western rainbow anymore. I think, you know, I would certainly go to a Southeastern one, maybe, you know, if it's back in New England or the Midwest. But um, to me, there's kind of this, diminishing return certainly for me personally like I, I feel like um it really is an act of love and service when i'm there and i'm all about that i've been volunteering since i was a kid at the library where i lived in south florida but also i'm middle-aged now and um i'm kind of trying to balance like i mean it can cost a thousand dollars to go to a rainbow gathering the way I used to, you know, out of pocket, no compensation. Something I mentioned is rainbow. There's not really money other than a collective pot to um, buy food in bulk that is then distributed to kitchens, as you know, because you all have helped run one. And I have been part of another one, which sometimes is a kitchen, but we have continually tried to direct it more towards education, which is called green path every year. And, uh, yeah, I just find that um, it's, gotten, it's gotten harder and harder for me to go to Rainbow, honestly, for a lot of different reasons that, once again, that could probably be its own show, so I'll probably just leave it there. Yeah, totally. But Vermont was a favorite, one of my favorites of all time, definitely from the East Coast. Vermont was wonderful. Yeah. What's the wildest thing you ever saw at a Rainbow Gathering? Well, it's funny because right after that, I remembered the guy that wigged out. Maybe you remember that too. Um, and like Seven Song and, and some other folks had to kind of like bring him down. He was trying to, I think, like cut himself and all these things. Not to scare people off too much, but. <laughs> yeah, it's a gathering of sometimes five to 10,000 people. You're going to have all full sorts spectrum, of things. Full down. spectrum, full spectrum. A lot of substances. There's. You know, people that go out there and think Rainbow will cure them and they go off their meds. And But I would say like from an, the other side of things, like the most beautiful, although for some people it might be a little shocking or challenging, but I remember my first national in 97, Oregon, they had set up this whole hot shower complex and like wow. you would um, sign up your name and it was like a long line, you know, you might be <laughs> deep or something. So there were just like all these like hippie folks hanging out, waiting to take like a hot shower in the middle. I mean, something else we can describe is like it's often miles of hiking to get into the gathering from where you park mm -hmm. the car. And so it just felt like very magical to like have this whole hot shower complex that these rainbows set up there and also, I remember a piano being brought into the 99 gathering in Pennsylvania, wow. which was a very wet, muddy gathering. It was hard to walk by yourself, let alone, I can't even imagine what bringing that piano in must have been like. Wow, that, that's crazy. That's wild. Sacrifice <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, a lot of that rainbow. A lot of that. It's amazing that way. A lot of great music, too, of course. Y'all got strong yeah, music connections good. as well as plant ones. And so I've always been grateful for the rainbow music. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a, that's a good part about it. Sure. I remember that 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 gathering in uh, Vermont 
I was, I, I'm a plant person and a music person. And, and I, I saw you guys with the printed out lists and like, you know, so much more about plants than I probably ever will. <laughs> but I went, so I went around and played music and that's, it's just, I felt like that was that, that kind of like, uh, pushed me in the music direction a little bit because like these guys have the have the plant stuff down pat i can i can just go play some music <laughs> and do my own thing which but, was greatly appreciated and, yeah yeah and it just circles back around too i mean now i'm focusing more on plants but i think that's one of the great things about rainbow i mean there's a lot of a lot of things about rainbow there's some terrible things and some great things but there's so many experiences there you can just kind of go off and, and do what you know follow your adventure yeah, so much beauty. I mean, I think of the Granola Funk Theater, which is another kind of classic aspect of Rainbow, where they have all sorts of performances, certainly music, music but lots of other things too, comedy and sketches. And yeah, I just feel like Rainbow, more than any place I've ever been, has just constantly surprised me with the amazing artistic ability and innovative nature of humanity. Yeah, and our ability to survive, <laughs> yeah. to, to be in with all of these, like, you know, factors in the woods where people can really injure themselves and you're miles from a road, never mind, hours from a hospital. And we go to this little tent called Calm, the first aid tent where Seven Song and his herb students and other doctors and nurses and EMTs work together uh, to to help people navigate all these different scenarios. Um, and so speaking of Seven Song, you mentioned that you studied with him as well, well right? Well, Seven Song has, as you know, the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine, and I toyed with going to that school at one point, but um, yeah, I think I kind of was in this quandary when that was happening of academia versus some course of study like that. So I never have gone through a whole formal course of training with Seven Song. I mostly have studied with him in the context of Rainbow and both the plant walks that he leads, but also those interstitial times in between. And then we are on a similar conference circuit. Of course, there's all sorts of um, different medicinal plant conferences that happen in different parts of the country. And we've often found ourselves you know, in those places at the same time. And I've studied with him in that regard through that. And then of course he has lots of um, online offerings. He's so generous in regards to yes. what he puts out on social media. And the course I do, Botany Every Day, also has a Facebook component, which I was just giving gratitude to yeah. Seven Song the other day for how awesome he's been, you know, and contributing to that. And then also, um, I remember a ways back, he did a course uh, through John Gallagher and Learning Herbs that I signed up for, which I believe now a lot of that is available for free on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. You're both very generous with your offers with plant education. So thank you for, for that, for having Botany Every Day be a donation-based one. So many herbal schools are so expensive and you know it, it limits a lot of people from being able to study the plants and yeah it's just so important yeah i've always felt money should never be a limiting factor in people achieving their goals and desires and certainly in regards to the online botany course that's something that frank really lived his whole life by he um basically lived life by donation and he had a saying, give what you can, receive what you need. And um, while I can't ascribe to that at this point, but um, I'm very dedicated to keeping at least that botany course as a living legacy of Frank's ethic in that regard. So cool. So you spend a lot of time in academia and also a lot of time like doing the plant walks, um, which is a, kind of a, a cool... I mean, plant walks themselves are a really interesting way to learn about plants. And I think for some people, it's a much better way than academia because you can like look at the plant, smell it, look, you know, hold it up. Um, and you have that one-on-one -on -one thing. But so in, in school, did you study ethnobotany? 
Yeah, I did, which probably bears some defining. Yeah, ethnology. what is ethnology? Yeah, ethnology is the study of different cultures. You can think like ethnic groups. And botany, of course, is the study of plants. So you combine those two sciences together, and it's the study of the interface between people and plants and how different cultural groups have depended upon plants for food and medicine and for what anthropologists call material culture, like your built environment and textiles and these sorts of things. And so um, my undergrad degree was more sustainable agriculture, so really a subset that's focused on food production. And then in graduate school was when I really expanded out and I was more in an anthropology program, which is what most people I would say have the option to do if they want to follow a course of study in ethnobotany is to basically do an anthropology track and then focus on plants. Um, there are a few specific ethnobotany programs, but they're pretty few and far between. Uh, Frostburg State University in Maryland, um, New York Botanical Gardens, and um, City University of New York, and there's University of Kent, and in England, but um, yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I think that uh, a lot of people I know in my community and in the larger Rainbow community and, and others that have never had a scrap of academic training in botany know a lot more than people that have whole degrees in botany in regards to learning plants in the field because botany has shifted so much towards looking at DNA and analyzing the chemistry and, um, you know, breeding and all sorts of things that are very important. And, um, and I'm grateful for all that work that's done. Uh, at the same time, botany programs are closing down right and left and you can be, it's hard to actually even get a degree in botany anymore. It's typically plant biology as a subset of biology. And it is something that's a bit of a dying art, the aspect of the field identification of plants, even for folks that focus on plant science in school. Well, it seems to be a, a quite living art with, uh, with you and with other people who, who do plant walks. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I just... Keeping it alive. No, exactly. Lots of people in communities like ours that are teaching their kids, you know, stuff that I know 10 year olds that know more than most of the people in the whole country already about plants. And I really like to emphasize that because it does feel like that we've kind of gotten into this place through um, industrialization and specialization towards like, like you can only be this one thing, you know, and you have to be amazing at it too, in order to call yourself a musician or some other kind of artist or or a botanist, whereas in a lot of traditional societies, everybody is a botanist by default. Yeah. I mean, you just got to know the choice edibles and the most important poisonous things and lots of things in between, you know, yeah. in order to survive, let alone thrive. Right. So what, what do you think we can learn about a culture from observing how they interact with plants? Oh, so much. I, I, and it, of course, there's so many cultures and um, it just really spans the gamut from kind of using Maslow's hierarchy, which folks could Google uh, if they're interested, but uh, it's like about the needs that any human has. And at the base level is this kind of core survival, food, clothing, shelter, and uh, the material culture. But then above that, of course, you get into other levels of human experience, like the arts and, um, and ritual. Mm -hmm. And uh, every single culture, just kind of by definition, is going to do it a little different. You know, I mean, it's kind of, as an example, a, a bit of a pet peeve of mine when people are like, well, the Native Americans did this and the Native Americans did that. Well, there's over 500 tribes, you know, and they all had different languages. And I've done my most deep study uh, with the Cherokee because they're the indigenous folks of the area where I live. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear from looking at the work of researchers that 
within different subgroups, they might have whole different uses, even whole different names for the same plant. And so um, it's a bit of a race against time because of course it's not just academia where this knowledge is starting to erode and, and, and not get taught anymore. It's all over the world, this move towards urbanization and, and going to the city. And so, um, you know, every single grandma and grandpa that is carrying this wisdom of their lineage for generations, maybe thousands of years that pass without it transferring to the current generations and thereby into the future is a huge loss as far as how we might be able to cope and deal with whatever challenges that we might face as well as be able to really celebrate in a unique way how awesome life can be through our interaction with the natural world. Yeah. So do you see a, a link between botany and spirituality? I know that there are a lot of botanists. I mean, botany is a science and it's very, it has a materialistic, uh, you know, frame of reference, but um, I, you know, do, do you see, I mean, for, for instance, you, you, you seem to have, gone really deeper into plants after a uh, Vipassana retreat. So do you see a linkage there or, or are they separate things? They are definitely intrinsically linked and connected for me personally. At the same time, I'm sensitive to the fact, especially more science leading and leaning people that you know, there can be this sense of, well, that's woo-woo, you know, and then if you kind of get into the more spiritual aspects, then that is going to discount the, you know, the hard science, as it were. And I feel like that that those strong distinctions are, are starting to kind of break down a little bit. But yeah, I'm certainly somebody who at my core is, I'm very spiritual and I feel like that some kind of spiritual connection is, if not necessary, at least helpful for just about everybody. But what that looks like, I feel very open and flexible about. And um, kind of like how I was saying with Frank, I, I try to meet people where they're at. I know it can go off the rails real quick when you talk religion or politics. And um that's kind of a classic thing that's kind of a no-no, you know, in mixed company or, you know, various other places. But at the same time, I'm in a deep kind of um, reflecting period about how to bring some more of those elements forward in a way that is authentic to my own experience, ideally is still engaging of dialogue with people that might feel differently. Um, but also just kind of like, you know, it's all connected. I mean, I, I it's a bit of a jump, but I, I've just come to all the racial tension, for instance, that's happening now too, which is, you know, another very loaded subject. And yet we can't silo off these things um, by themselves, like they all have their part to play and obviously different people are going to engage to different degrees with spirituality or, or what it means to um, honor different cultures and their plant traditions or to disparage those or to culturally appropriate those or, um, you know, and spirituality really gets into that. You know, if you think about this phenomenon happening with ayahuasca, for instance, now in our world and yeah. Yeah. Um, how that may or may not be sustainable and how certain people approach it. And so it's very loaded and fraught and, and sticky and hard to navigate these things. But I think more and more we don't have the option and, uh, and the leisure to just say, well, because it's hard, we need to kind of like have that off to the side and we'll focus on what we all agree on and what's more easy like the technical things about going through a key to identify a plant. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So we're, we're starting to uh, come close to the end of our time. It's, it's gone by very quickly. Yeah. It's a pleasure talking to you. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, bring it back to um, your specific work. Uh, your, 
you you're the executive director of plantsandhealers.org you have botanyeveryday.com you're on the board of directors for united plant savers um could you tell us a little bit about united plant savers and and what what the work is there what you do yeah yes and i appreciate you really bringing that up to um I get it in before the close here because United Plant Savers is very much kind of a sister organization to Plants and Healers International. And uh, it's an organization I've been part of in various ways for close to 20 years, but recently joined the board last year. And the main focus around United Plant Savers is the preservation of traditionally specifically medicinal plants of North America. Although we just had a board meeting a little ways back and we were kind of talking about how to maybe redefine that mission somewhat to certainly be wider in scope outside of North America and to kind of take on some of these more cultural components of various different communities and how they interact with the plants and uh, of course some people will be familiar with some really famous threatened plants like ginseng or golden seal or maybe white sage which are some real big areas of interest for United Plant Savers, but we have an um, at-risk list of many more plants that are in commercial trade, but potentially being overly exploited. Uh, and United Plant Savers does so much beyond that. They have an internship program in um, the Appalachian part of Ohio, near Athens, where they train people about both botany, but also wildcrafting and production and propagation of these plants. And um, they also do lots of outreach and education through various different conferences. They've been really focused on forest farming lately uh, in regards to uh, this kind of um, classic uh, challenge around how we use the woods and, and basically trying to find alternatives for folks that want to leave the trees, but potentially still um, make a living in another way, but then have that be sustainable. And um, yeah, lots of different publications. There's a journal, uh, there are a membership organization, very low um, personal starter membership level that would give you access to the journal. And then often they'll send along some stickers or seeds or some rootlets of some special plants that they've propagated at this place in Ohio. Uh, Susan Leopold is the executive director of United Plant Savers. She's based in Virginia, but goes all over to try to assess the state of commerce in particular around a lot of these threatened and endangered plants. And it was started by Rosemary Gladstar, who some folks will be familiar with as a powerhouse who started lots of things, um, including the California School of Herbal Studies. And I think she was in on traditional medicinals early on and um, the International Herbal Symposium. So Rosemary Gladstar is really a kind of guiding light in regards to the work that United Plant Savers has been doing over the decades. Yeah, so anyone could be a member, you said, or just yes. a membership fee. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way to get involved? Just check out the United Plant Savers website and see how you might be able to save some plants in there in your own forests and fields in your neighborhood. Exactly. And plants and healers and yeah, plant savers, like I said, kind of sister organizations, so similar ethic, like for instance, all the journals. I was talking about you can download as PDFs for free at the United Plant Savers website and lots of videos that you can uh, access for free as well there and uh, a lot of other great resources besides. Well, uh, it looks like we're about out of time. I want to thank you very much, Mark Williams, for being on the Plant Cunning Podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to, to say? Well, I'm just so grateful for y'all, both as individuals and as a couple, just witnessing how you are in the world is really incredible. And um, it's in particular felt really awesome at Rainbow, where in 
you know, there's this mission that we're kind of carrying there that it really does take a team and a village to raise that up. And um, I would say we're kind of a, a somewhat small group in a big sea of people there. Yeah. So it's been really awesome to have that camaraderie. And um, yeah, I just hope to spend more good time with y'all down the line, whether it's at Rainbow or, or in other ways. And here you make some more awesome music as well too. So thank you for doing this and, and bringing this podcast online. Thanks, it's really sweet, Mark, appreciate it. And yeah, it was really fun talking with you and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too, so. Yeah, you got a lot of wisdom. And I hope uh, everybody checks out the uh, botanyeveryday.com website. That's a really uh, valuable offering for people who want to, to learn about, about botany. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you, too. Such a pleasure. I look forward to talking more later.